Father, as we are reminded through the course of this past week of our blessings from your hand each and every day throughout our lives, we truly want to make every day a day of thanksgiving to you, not just one day, but we're grateful that there is a national day committed to thanksgiving. And we trust, Lord, that across this land that millions uh, were truly thankful to you for all that you have done. We ask you, Lord, for your special blessing upon us this hour, that you will guide our thoughts, our attitudes, the direction of our hearts. We ask that we'll be pliable in your hands and that your word will uh, not only impress our minds but our hearts and that you will, <coughs> you will shape us, mold us into the image that you have chosen for each of us. Lord, I thank you for each one here. We pray for your blessing throughout our Sunday School today in each class, for all the way from the uh, cradle roll to the senior citizens. We trust, Lord, that you will be at work, moving in our lives according to your great plan and will. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, I'd like to read uh, verses 37 through 39 to begin with. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. And a mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. And they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread. For it had not become leavened, since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Pagan Egypt suffered a foretaste of eternal judgment in a series of ten plagues that we have studied that occurred over the course of probably several weeks to a few months. And these plagues were brought upon Egypt for the specific purpose of manifesting the power and the glory of God to Egypt, to the world, and specifically to his own people, Israel. We have to remember that Israel was a nation that had been in Egypt so long that many had basically forgotten their heritage and their roots. Certainly they knew of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but how could they really relate to these men who were actually wealthy nomads when they were locked in slavery in Egypt and they didn't even have possession of their own bodies, let alone any of this world's goods? And so God was demonstrating to these people that he was the same God who had been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as he had empowered them and granted promises to them, so he would do for this people. So the plagues had multiple purposes. I think it's important to recognize, as I mentioned a moment ago, that they were a foretaste of eternal judgment for at least the pagan Egyptians. Israel, through this, was made aware of the omnipotence of their God. It was really important for them because they had lived in this land of Egypt where, as we've noted before, there were these numerous gods, uh, each god having its little realm of authority and some of them overlapping in a kind of a hierarchy of gods to some extent. 
and, and to understand or to, to have the concept of a, of a single God who is only God and is God over all and has no limitations was very, very important for the Israelis to, to understand, just as it is important for us today. It's a little easier, though, for us because of our tradition, our heritage in this, heritage in this country. But that's being diluted. I don't know if you noted yesterday in the uh, Reading Searchlight, but on that page where they have the little map that shows where the volcanoes erupted and the hurricanes occurred this past week, that little box in there showing that they had just completed, apparently in London, the largest Hindu temple outside of India to serve the one and a half million Hindus that live in the greater London area. And, and you can imagine what this is doing in the spiritual realm. Uh, there's a, a tremendous warfare going on there. And the Christian church in, in England has, of course, been badly eroded over the past century or so. And uh, maybe this will be a challenge which will stimulate uh, the true Christians to turn to God as never before. But to, to understand that the God of Israel is the only God, and that the gods worshipped by the Egyptians, or the gods currently worshipped by the Hindus, or the God of, of Muhammad, that none of these are God. None of them are real. They, there may be spiritual forces behind the, those gods, but they're, they're not God. They're demonic forces. And at the same time, to, to acknowledge the paramount importance of obedience to this God, who is the God of Israel. Through Moses, they have been commanded to leave Egypt, to pick up from this place where they have been now for 400 years, and to launch out into the wilderness in order to arrive at the promised land, the land that had been promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and through them, of course, to the Israel of the day of Moses. Now, they were a, an enslaved people. They were largely a sedentary people. They had been living in the land of Goshen now for all these years. <coughs> Before, they had been largely nomadic. They moved their animals through the wilderness from one spot to another. Yes, they settled down in Hebron for a while. They settled down in Beersheba for a while. But for 400 years, they've been in this same piece of property for all this time. They were a sedentary people. And, and now they're being asked to leave. Most of them had certainly never been outside of Goshen for their entire lives. Many of them probably had never been as far, any further than they could see over to the horizon. It's very flat in the area of Goshen. And, and so this was an incredible thing they were being asked to do. It was so terribly out of the ordinary. And to many of them, as I think I inferred at the end of class last time, the promised land was to them as Shangri-La might be to us. You know, kind of a mythical, hypothetical wonderland someplace that you don't ever expect to really see. And so this is the people that has been called out of the land of Egypt to follow Moses and Aaron into the wilderness, and follow they do. Every last man, woman, and child picks up, drops everything, packs what they could in the moments they had to themselves to pack, and they follow Moses and Aaron on this great adventure. For some, I think it was kind of an exciting adventure. For others, 
<laughs> it was a fearful thing. The older you get, the more fearful that usually becomes to, to change, to change everything in your life. For the kids, it was probably exciting, you know. They didn't know what was going on anyway, for the most part. The question is, how many have embarked on this great safari? Well, of course, this passage which you read gives a round number, 600,000 men. If we turn to Numbers, which we won't do, but in the first chapter of Numbers, it spells it out as 603,550 men. Well, we'd have to assume that if there are, uh, from 20 years of age and upward, there are 603,550 men, the, the great chances are that there are about 603,550 women of the same age, more or less, and that below 20, you have at least that number, probably a larger number uh, of, of people. So when you add the, the 603, the 603, and then a larger number, you come up with a very conservative estimate of 2 million people total here. Some give a figure as great as 2.5 million people. It just depends. As you, if you think about populations around the world today, Many countries in the world have uh, populations where the average age is around 15 or 16 years old, meaning half the population, or the median age is about that, meaning half the population is under uh, 15 or 16 and half is over. Uh, probably for Israel at that time, since they were an enslaved people, the median age would probably have been a little bit higher. But it's very possible that you had as many below 20 as you had above 20. Uh, in this population. So two million, I think, could be considered a very conservative figure for the total population here. This passage tells us, though, that in addition to that number, there was a mixed multitude that went up out of Egypt with Israel. The Hebrew meaning of the term mixed multitude is a large number of a mongrel race, meaning a, a group of people, a hybrid uh, people. Probably other Semitic peoples left over from the uh, days when the Hyksos at, had ruled Egypt and uh, then were conquered by the resurgence of Egyptian power. Non-Hebrews, but probably uh, somehow related in being Semitic people in the broad sense of that term. In Numbers 11, this mixed multitude is referred to as the rabble in Israel the rabble in Israel, they, they will prove to be a problem. They will be a kind of a burr under the saddle, so to speak, as time passes, because apparently they stay with Israel for a great deal of the time. Where else are they going to go, you know? They, they get out of Egypt, they, they kind of leave in the midst of the whirl of the confusion and of the opportunity. Oh, Israel's been told to get, well, let's just become Israel and go with them, you know? And, and others, apparently thousands, fled out into the wilderness with Israel. And once they got out there, where are they going to go? You know, they just stayed with the group because obviously God was leading and God was there and they got to partake in all the blessings, apparently. So they went along. But later on, we discover they, they create murmuring and disputes and, and probably they generate some of the problems that uh, Israel experiences a little later on in the, in the wilderness. Our passage here informs us that the only food that Israel had was some unleavened dough, which they baked into what we would call matzos. 
and had as they traveled along. That's all they could gather together at the last minute. They had just come through the Passover season. They were supposed to get all the leaven out of their houses. So all they had was unleavened dough to take with them. And so they took this out into the wilderness. And the scripture says specifically they left in, left in such haste that they didn't have time to make provisions for the journey. So you think about this. You're leaving Egypt. You're going out into the wilderness. You don't know how long you're going to be gone. And all you got's a little unleavened dough. Well, obviously, they were going to have to learn to trust God very quickly because their food supply would run out very soon. Next passage, beginning at verse 40 in chapter 12. <coughs> now about the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt, now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came about at the end of 430 years to the very day that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt it is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. Well, this passage tells us now that the children of Israel, the Israelites, had been in Egypt for 430 years. It even says to the very day. Uh, apparently applying to the time that Jacob moved the clan across the border into Egypt. So what they are now doing is actually fulfilling a prophecy. Most of them probably didn't realize this, but they were in the process of fulfilling a prophecy because God had said to Abraham, now you probably remember that uh, there are several encounters that Abraham had with God in the 12th chapter of Genesis, the 15th chapter of Genesis, the 17th chapter of Genesis. God appears to Abraham and pretty much refreshes the, the promise, the vision, and, and tells him that your, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, and uh, I'm going to lead you uh, into becoming a great nation. But he also had said in that passage in the 15th chapter of Genesis that your descendants will be strangers in a land where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. They have come through that enslavement and that oppression. They are now in the process of leaving. That period is now behind them. They're moving out into a new era. In, in the passage you read, there's an interesting uh, statement made there. We notice that as the Israelites left their bondage behind and obediently followed the Lord towards the promised land, they become known as the hosts of Yahweh. They are now becoming the hosts of Yahweh. Now the word hosts in Hebrew literally means army or armies. They're becoming the armies of Yahweh as they march out of the land of Egypt. And of course, can you visualize them? Slaves leaving the land, driving their herds before them. I don't know if you'd want to really call that an army. Probably look more like a plague of grasshoppers. Even though as we're going to notice here, uh, as we read a little bit further along, that uh, they were quickly put in order and, and, and they marched in... in uh, in good array. Humanly speaking, I think we would probably be more tempted to call them a horde 
rather than an army. But what made them the army of the Lord? The Lord, right? He is the one that made them the army of the Lord. They, they may have been, humanly speaking, incapable of fighting even the most puny of armies. After all, they were slaves. What did they know about warfare? I mean, how many of them even possessed anything that could be called a weapon? But as they move forward, God will give them the victory in spite of their inadequacies. It's kind of like the church. Has it ever seemed a little incongruous to you to sit in, in church with all of our fine clothes on and sing onward Christian soldiers marching as to war? I, don't, I realize we don't sing that song here very much. I can't remember ever hearing it here, but I'm sure it has been sung sometime. But can you imagine that? I mean, we don't look much like soldiers as we look around, you know. But obviously what we're talking about is spiritual warfare and, and spiritual soldiers. Men and women who move forth in the faith of God to accomplish God's purpose. Because we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And, and it's our purpose here to infiltrate the world with the message of God. And that's what God is doing with Israel. This motley crew is going to be going out and establishing the nation that would be the radiant light of God's glory. At least that was the idea anyway. And, and they were to establish a great theocracy where God would rule. And he would rule through various charismatic leaders that he would raise up, which were called judges. And they would then be God's instruments of bringing peace and order within society. And they would be a great example to the surrounding nations. That was the plan. And so they are marching forth here as the army of Yahweh. And in this 42nd verse, it just kind of seems to stick out here in the middle of the passage where it says, it is a night. What's to be a night? You know, they're talking about being here 400 years and all this. Well, obviously it's referring back to the Passover. A night to be observed for the Lord for having brought them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, the Passover was not just the moment where God judged Egypt, but the Passover was the birth moment of Israel as the army of, of the Lord, as the host of Israel, as the host of Yahweh. That was the moment of their birth when the angel overflew the houses where the blood was put on in faith, believing, and in the other houses where such was not done, death struck. Israel was born as the people of God that night. They were to celebrate the Passover every year at that same time. They were to do it so that all future generations would be vividly aware of the fact that the Lord is their deliverer and that only the Lord is their deliverer. God will raise up judges during the period called that of the judges, and you read about it in the book of the judges. As I mentioned in the Sunday night where we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the Hebrew word there is not judge. I mean, the book is called Judges in English, but the, that's not really a good word. It's shafat. Uh, shafat is more of a, 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 of a prophet deliverer. We think of a judge as somebody sitting up at a court bench who, you know, makes a decision as to whether you're guilty, well, what your judgment ought to be if you've been rendered guilty or whatever. That's, that's not the meaning, not that they never did that. 
but their primary job was to bring Israel together and lead them forth to battle and lead them in the ways of God. Most judges weren't very successful in leading the people to God, but that was to be part of their job. They were God's deliverers. They were the instruments God used for deliverance. But the deliverer with a capital D was God. And Israel was to be reminded of that by the constant annual celebration of the Passover, that God and God alone is the deliverer. Now, it was a physical deliverance, of course, because they put physical blood on physical doorposts and physical children lived. But the meaning behind the Passover, the deliverance was not primarily physical. It was spiritual because God is the eternal deliverer. And that's what Israel was to learn. The, the rite had no real meaning. Why should it be repeated if it was all only a, a physical deliverance? Well, it happened back then, so big deal, you know. Glad it happened. But what did it matter? Well, the rite was to be repeated because it was a spiritual deliverance. And as I thought about that, it reminds me of Thanksgiving. Now, we have this fourth Thursday of November set aside for a day of thanksgiving. And, of course, it's patterned on the original pilgrim activity way back in the early 17th century. And, of course, the pilgrims gave thanks to God for delivering them and enabling them to survive in this new land. But what do most people do today on thanksgiving? Simply pig out. And they may say, well, Lord, thank you for the grub or whatever, and that's it. Fortunately, I trust, there are millions in America who make it truly a day of thanksgiving where we turn our hearts towards God in a new way. But I think for most, it's a really, really cultural phenomenon that has no spiritual meaning whatsoever. And so that's really what Passover could have become and probably did in the hearts of many Israelites. Oh no, we got to go through this thing again, you know? Got to eat these bitter herbs. And some of the kids probably griped and complained about it. But behind it was the truth of God's ultimate deliverance of Israel, spiritually. Verse 43, Exodus 12. And the Lord said to Aaron, to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. But every man's slave purchased with money, after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel is, are, are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person, person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And it came about on the same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. God gives very explicit directions and regulations concerning the Passover. 
was not to be a hit and miss thing. Oh, just celebrate it, you know, uh, sacrifice the lamb and uh, remember what I did. No, God is very specific about what is to happen here. First of all, he says that absolutely no uncircumcised person was to participate in the Passover. It was for the hosts of Yahweh only, those who were committed to the Lord God, who had followed the, in obedience by taking the sign of circumcision, which meant being committed to the God of Israel. Visitors, ambassadors into the land from other countries, hired workers, whoever they might be, could participate only if they were circumcised. And it meant that what they were doing was committing themselves to the worship of Israel. They were committing themselves to, well, I'll just use the word Judaism. You can't really call it that at this time. That's what it ultimately will become. But they're committing themselves to the worship of the God of Israel by that act of circumcision. And then they can participate in the Passover celebration. It tells us in this passage it was not to be a congregational celebration. We're not supposed to all gather together in a big crowd and have a big party Passover. It was to, be take, it was to take place individually in each household. Each house was to celebrate the Passover separately from each other house, except, as we read in the first instance, if the family was too small to have a lamb uh, and to consume it, then two families can get together. But it was not to be a large program here. It was to be done in each house. And later scripture tells us that the male leader of the household was to officiate over the Passover celebration. And finally, this scripture tells us that all Israel was to participate. All Israel. You couldn't just say, oh, well, the kids are too small, let them go out and play. They were to be there, no matter how small, how young they were. Uh, no one could just say, well, you know, I got a job and I got to work that day, so I can't. No. Everyone was to participate. Every member of that household was to be in that household and was to partic participate. This was God's command. You know, we, we live in a day and age when we have lots of reasons why we don't do things. Because it's inconvenient because of our work or because of our vacation or because of something else. And, and certainly we don't live under the law as Israel would soon. But... Uh, I think sometimes we have developed a flippancy in our society relative to the things of God. That they're really, you know, if it's convenient, you do it. If not, God understands. Well, I think we push the God understands button probably too much, too frequently. I think God expects us to be a little bit more understanding ourselves of what he wants us to do and, and what our obedience reflects to the world and how our obedience to the Lord should be over all other things in our lives, even our jobs and whatever else. The emphasis here, too, was on the personal responsibility of each and every individual. Every individual 
was personally responsible to remember what God had done in the deliverance of the Passover so that that individual could relate directly to God as deliverer. We've often heard it said in our day that God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And that was true then as it is now. We must personally relate to God. We can't ride in on our parents or our brother's coattail or anybody else. Which is really unfortunate. Not that that's unfortunate, but it's unfortunate that churches have gone that way. And, and you look at the established church uh, that's been in existence for, over, for nearly 2,000 years now and discover many churches, many large you know, you know, churches, it's kind of like you joining a club, and as long as you belong to the club, you're okay. That's kind of a coattail entrance. It doesn't work. Every person has to have his own personal relationship with God, and it doesn't matter if he was baptized, born and baptized and confirmed and everything else within some church. If that relationship to God is not a personal one, the rest of it doesn't matter. You might as well be a pagan out there as far as God is concerned. I don't mean that that would be better for society, but it isn't going to get you any further into heaven. Just to say, I was born and baptized in the so-and-so church. And that's really what's sad about, well, for example, Russia. Going into Russia and, and preaching the gospel and, and having the Orthodox Church rising up again now and, and trying to push out the evangelicals because they have the concept, the same way that the Catholic Church has, that if you're in that big circle, call the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church, then you're in. And if you're not in that, you're out. And it doesn't really have anything specifically to do, in practice anyway, with a personal relationship with God, although the theology is there. You look at the theology of the Orthodox Church and you look at the theology of the Catholic Church and it's good theology. They believe in Jesus Christ as as the Son of God who came and died on, on the cross and rose again for salvation. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in you know, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. They believe all these things, or I should say the theology is there. Unfortunately, it doesn't come out in the practice. And too many ride the practice rather than the theology, and as a result, do not have that personal relationship. And that's what God is dealing with here. Later on, you know, the Israelites will indicate well, you know, we're the children of Abraham, so we must be okay. You know, and the Lord will say, God's able to raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. So what's the big deal if you don't have the personal relationship with God? Uh, the 50th verse of this chapter is very much like the 28th verse. Very, very important statement. And they did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. It's a wonderful thing to read those verses in the Old Testament about Israel. And they did just as God told them to do, exactly as God told them to do. Because we're so used to reading the passages where it says, and Israel sinned, and so God sent them another, you know, invading army or something. We, we need to remember that Israel was also obedient. Israel was God's chosen people. And the Israelites did as God commanded him, them to do. There were those times when they didn't. But well, let's not forget the times when they did. Because it <laughs> seems to so reflect our lives sometimes. And we can get down on ourselves to the point 
that we just think we're you know, so bad because we disobey that we're not worth anything. And uh, we have to realize that God is at work. He is faithful, even if we aren't as faithful as we ought to be. He is faithful and He is at work in our lives to make us into the people He wants us to be. Well, the first part of chapter 13, I, I won't read those um, uh, verses because it is a repetition of the instructions that we have already read in the previous chapter concerning the Passover. But I'd like to read beginning at verse 11 of chapter 13. Now it shall come about when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, the first offspring of every beast that you own, the males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And it shall be when your sons ask you in time to come, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it shall, so it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as flactories on your forehead, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. God, by the great stroke of his hand, crippled Egypt by slaying the firstborn of man and beast. He required Israel, therefore, to redeem each firstborn of man and animal as a remembrance of what God had done for Israel there in Egypt at the time of the Passover. The scripture tells us here that the firstborn of every beast, domesticated beast, what we're talking about here, was to be sacrificed to God except for the firstborn of the donkey. Now the donkey was an unclean animal. Therefore, the donkey was not to be sacrificed to God, but a redemption was to be made for it by the sacrifice of a lamb. Um, I have a note here in my Bible that says that it has something to do with the economic importance of the pack animal. That's why they didn't kill the donkeys. Have you heard that at all? I suppose that's a possibility, but when you think about it, um, to, to Israel, to a nomadic people, all, all of the animals were of great economic importance because that's what they lived on. Of course, the actual law of clean and unclean animals hasn't been given yet. So, to me, I see this as a statement looking forward to that law and implying that, but obviously other things could be true, too. I hadn't heard that, but that's a, that's a possibility. 
Uh, what's interesting though, we're told here is that if you can't, see, see the thing of it is, we're told if you can't redeem it with a lamb, what are you to do with it? You're to kill it anyway and to break its neck. And, and the reason we're breaking its neck is that blood won't flow because blood is the sign of a, of a sacrifice. And so, you know, I, I don't exactly know how that would fit, but the additional regulations given here are interesting. First of all, we're told that only the male firstborn was to be sacrificed. So if the firstborn was a female, it wouldn't be sacrificed. But the firstborn male would, was to be sacrificed of each animal. And then later on, according to Exodus 22, we're told when that sacrifice was to occur. It was to occur on the eighth day after the birth of that animal. That's when the sacrifice was to occur. So you, you think about that. You've got a herd of sheep, let's say. You've got 200 sheep. You've got to keep track of each female so that you know when that female gives birth to its first male lamb. How many sacrifices would you be making in the spring? Several. It sounds complicated. It sounds wasteful. But when you think about that, it helped Israel to understand that God meant business and that <clears throat> the worship of God was a serious thing. And the, the impact of sin was very, very powerful. And for people to wake up to what sin really meant, they needed to know there was a high price attached. It's, it's kind of easy for us. You've all certainly heard of the theology called easy believism. Uh, I'm not saying that that's real theology. I'm just saying that's what some people call certain theological principles. The idea that at any moment in life when you finally decide you've had enough and you say, Dear Lord, I, you know, I, I turn to you. Uh, I'd like to be your child. But then life gets good again, physically speaking. And so you kind of forget all about that. Pretend like it never happened. There are those who argue that uh, that person was really saved. And no matter what they do after that, they're going to be in heaven. Others refer to that as easy believism. You know, it's kind of a escape hatch type thing and that what a person does in his or her life does not necessarily have to reflect the commitment to God. You really have a hard time supporting that from Scripture, really. Uh, even though I understand the principle. The Scripture says that if any man calls on the name of the Lord Jesus and believes in his heart that God is raising from the dead, he's saved. But I think that could be made into just a little ditty that one does rather than a real transaction of being born again. Jesus said, ye must be born again. That's not just a little thing we do by saying, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and repeat this prayer after me. It's got to actually happen in the heart. Now, it can happen in the heart repeating this prayer after the pastor, and I trust it does every time. But it doesn't automatically follow. The heart has got to be convicted by the Spirit and transformed by the Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that brings about the new birth. And if that has really occurred, sure, that infant uh, believer can act pretty un-Christ-like, just as sometimes we do as not infant believers. I mean, you look at a little infant child, and that little infant child kind of stumbles and bangs along and, and gets off the path and does all kinds of strange things. Not strange for an infant, but I mean, for an adult, we'd be strange doing those things. So we have to recognize that a newborn believer in Christ doesn't just automatically act like a, a mature believer. But that 
infancy should someday come to an end. And that person should someday become a mature believer and live as Christ would have that person to live. If that doesn't ever happen, then that's where the question arises as to whether new life ever really occurred, whether the new birth ever really occurred. By these constant sacrifices, Israel was reminded of the fact that their sin was real and that their sin was hateful in God's eyes and that there was a high cost that went along with it. And the constant need for them to sacrifice animals as a covering for their sin. Looking forward to the event which would bring true atonement for that sin in the death of Jesus Christ. So it's really not as wasteful as it sounds to us. The reason is specifically stated in this passage. Well, thirdly, I, I didn't get past the eighth day one. The eighth day, of course, can be viewed, viewed as symbolic. The scripture doesn't say why it has to be the eighth day. It just says it has to be the eighth day. But we can... Replication of the creative week took place. Thirdly, we discover from Deuteronomy chapter 15 that if the firstborn male of the animal had a defect, that animal was not to be sacrificed to God. But it was to be slain and to be eaten, but not sacrificed to God. And again, that is symbolic of the fact that God is perfect and that the sacrifice that would one day come had to be perfect as Jesus Christ was perfect. Jesus Christ was totally sinless. He couldn't have come any other way. That's why, you know, the whole theology that's behind much of the mainline church today that Jesus Christ was just a good teacher, and he was a man like anybody else, and he was no more divine than you and I are, because all of us have that spark within us that all we have to do is fan it, you know, to blaze up into divinity. I listened to a lady on the radio once, and it, she made me gag if she, you know, said those kinds of things. And I thought, how blind, how blind. Jesus had to be God in the flesh. God making the sacrifice because he was the only perfect one. And none of these, I mean, if you were to take this lamb and put it under a microscope, obviously you could probably find defects, you know, always genetic problems of some sort or another. But looking at the lamb, you know, it didn't have a short leg and it didn't have a twisted ear, it didn't have a bent tail or something else that made it obviously defective. But, but it was like a lamb was supposed to be, an, a kind of an ideal lamb. Then, then you sacrificed it because it was symbolic of the true Lamb of God who would be perfect without any defect, meaning, of course, not so much whether he had a hangnail or something, but perfect in that he was sinless. The symbolism is very powerful here. And we might look at it as nitpicking, but it's not nitpicking at all because God knows that if we don't see the standard up here as being in the flesh unattainable, then, then we will think we can get ourselves into heaven by our own strength and by our own power. And unfortunately, that's the way so much of the church has gone today. You're almost better off being in the older mainline churches than in the Protestant mainline churches. Because at least in the older mainline churches, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, they will say, well, I don't know if I'm really saved. Whereas in some of the mainline Protestant churches, oh, sure, I'm saved. I'm as good as anybody else, you know. 
that's a very pharisaical thing, and I think they're more the, the worse for it, really. More important, though, than the sacrifice of the animals for the sake of being the firstborn of the animal is that a lamb was to be sacrificed for every firstborn male Israelite, a, a sacrifice of redemption, to redeem that male. The reason is stated in the passage, and that is so that every generation would learn of the powerful hand of the Lord. Powerful hand of the Lord. How important it is that we recognize not only that God is real, but he is really here and really with us and really working in us and that he is powerful to do whatever he has called us to do. And we don't have to say, oh, well, I can't do it because I'm too weak. Yeah, sure. But if he's called us to do it, he will empower us to do it. He is the one delivering Israel from Egypt. How in the world would a bunch of slaves get out of a land where they were captive if this hadn't occurred, if it wasn't God granting the deliverance? You and I would never be redeemed from sin if it weren't God who redeemed us because we cannot redeem ourselves. It's so tragic. I'm reading a book right now which is kind of, uh, it focuses on the ministry of, of Missionary Aviation Fellowship in New Guinea. But in the process, it tells the whole story of... Uh, the uh, mission work that's been going on in New Guinea for the past uh, 50 years. And as, as you look at those people there, the Papuans, the, the native people who live in, in that land, these people are constantly living in fear, abject fear of the spirits. And as they do all these hocus-pocus things uh, because they're fearful of the spirits. Anthropologists don't want the missionaries going in there and screwing up these natural societies. You know, leave them away they are so we can study them as a test tube type, well not as a test tube, as a leftover from the Neolithic, you know. And yet when you look at the lives of these people, I mean they live in terror all the time. And it's, you know, they try to, quote, redeem themselves by the sacrificing of pigs and whatever they need to do to make the spirits happy with them. And then to know the difference that the gospel br brings and how it, it just transforms these people, not just because it puts clothes on them, but it, it changes their whole nature and being. I mean, to anybody say that, that that's just, well, the missionaries are just good psychologists, you know. They know how to go in and convince these people how to think differently. That's hokum. Uh, it's only by the power of God that they can be redeemed and transformed the way they are. And it's God's power who was at work in Israel delivering them from bondage. And it was of supreme importance that each new generation knew personally that God was their Redeemer. Not just nationally, but individually. If they didn't have that understanding, they would never be able to understand the concept of the Messiah. And they would never be able to recognize Him when He came. In Galatians chapter 3, we read these words, The law has become our tutor or schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. So what is the purpose of the law? Why was Israel given the law? 
to lead them to Christ. Unfortunately, when Jesus Christ came, most of Israel didn't even know the law. What they knew was what the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis had been teaching all these years, what they had invented over the years, and all this other stuff they had tacked on so that they so buried the law that people didn't recognize their Messiah when he came. The whole system of sacrifices revealed the need of personal redemption. Why would it be that you had to put your hand on the head of the lamb as that lamb was slain? It's a personal touchstone of faith, of the need of personal redemption. When Christ became the sacrifice for which all of these thousands and literally millions of sacrifices had been made as a symbol, then the need of those sacrifices ended right on the spot. When Christ said, it is finished, there was not need ever again for a single animal to be slain as sacrifice. Because the symbolism was no longer needed, because the reality had come in human history. And as we read in Hebrews 10, for by one offering Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, being set apart by God for his purpose. Well, we don't have time to continue on, so we'll pick up with the 17th verse of chapter 13 next week. And then we're going to go into chapter 14 when that fantastic miracle occurs when God parts the water. And it was much more dramatic than Cecil B. DeMille's could make it. <laughs> Especially when you think of what, what is described there and how it could actually happen. It's uh, really amazing.